Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Today's quote is from the Sanguttara Nikaya about about Nakula Pita Nakula Mata. These are a curious couple who uh, elderly couple who went to see the Buddha and when they saw him they fell at his feet and called him son and asked him why he had why he had, where he had gone why he had, why he had left them and the Buddha explained that in past life in their past lives they had been his parents for 500 births he preached to them and they became sotapannas and so this is a this is a quote from a, a talk about um i mean i guess it, i guess the whole point of it is how how married couples should behave towards each other or how married couple the sorts of things married couples are concerned with in regards to the dhamma so the idea here is this guy the the, the Pita is dying and his concern for his or he's sick and his concern for his wife and he's leaving behind is making him is uh, making the sickness worse so he's actually dying but the wife reassures him reminds him of, of uh, how how well off she is and how she's really going to be okay that's something that he should worry about and his worry subsides and as a result he gets better and then he goes to see the Buddha and uh, the Buddha extols virtues of this woman. I mean, I'm not, it's not the, the most profound quote, but uh, it, it gives some insight into, small insight into the, the way enlightened uh, couples live. These two are sotapanna, so you call them enlightened to some extent, not fully enlightened, but on the first stage of enlightenment. So she says, uh, do not die worried. It's important. I mean, if you want to go, go profound, this is the, the profound importance of this kind of uh, situation. It's that to die worried is a dangerous thing. And we all have many things that have the potential to make us worried when we pass away. Someone did a great job of coaching this man uh, as he was dying to be reminded that there's nothing to worry about. His life was perhaps coming to an end, but uh, basically that she would be all right that she would be able to support herself and that she would continue in her practice and that she was really already well established in the practice the buddhist teaching 
Anyway, let's skip right ahead to questions. If you have questions about the verse, I'm happy to take them, or the quote, I'm happy to take them, but I think we'll go on. Looks like we've got more chat than the chat holds, so I can't go back all the way, but scroll through this looking for questions. Oh no, maybe we are okay. Doesn't YouTube give you money when you have a lot of subscribers and videos? Doesn't that mean you're making money on this? Isn't that against the rule? Is that against the rule? No, no, YouTube doesn't give you money just because you have subscribers and videos. But it does if you are a partner and if you add ads to your video. I am a partner, but which allowed me way back when to upload longer videos but I disabled the ad uh, revenue service. I don't know if you get ads on your on my videos or not, but if you do, we don't make any money. Our organization doesn't, I don't, certainly. There's no money involved in YouTube. I, I assume, I, I know it could seem that way, and perhaps there, there are even videos, there's actually one or two videos, I think, that have been flagged for copyright because of some background. But um, background music, they're from a DVD or something. I think they may have ads associated with them, but, but that's, that's because um, rather than take the videos down, the copyright owners are making money off of them, making money off of our videos. We could just take them down, but whatever, not too concerned. The rest of the videos shouldn't have big ads in front of them. They may have ads on the page or something, but we don't make any money off of any of it. If you gain insight and maturity as you meditate about life, then when someone maybe swears at you in anger instead of responding with anger, wait, I think we've answered this. We have answered it. So we are all kind of Right, I remember all these. Okay, scroll ahead. Oh, these are all old. the Hungary ghost. Okay, there we are. Now we're caught up. Should one note swallowing during meditation? Absolutely. If there's swallowing, one should note swallowing. For some people, the, the, the swallow reflex, you just say swallowing. When we fall in love emotionally with someone, can we consider this to be attachment? If yes, should we recognize it as attachment and let go of this feeling? I mean, what would you consider besides an attachment? Suppose, we, the, the problem is we call it love. See, and love is such an ambiguous word in this instance. I mean, love is not the whole story. When you fall in love, you're very much talking about attachment. But love itself is positive. Love itself is, is to wish well for someone. Attachment is wishing for someone to bring you happiness. It's the desire to be pleased. Um, the, the attachment to the pleasure that comes from someone's um, or some, th some things presence. You love someone or you love something or uh, what is the word we say, but the meaning is you enjoy 
you enjoy seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and even thinking certain things. But love is love is different. Or, you know, it's just a word. There are certain meanings of the word love that are different. That mean wishing for someone to be happy. Kindness, friendliness. Yesterday morning I was doing Anapanasati meditation. Overwhelming happiness, afraid. Why is meditation impermanent and what can I do to not get freaked out during meditation? Well, that's. See, we don't practice probably the same meditation that you were practicing. So the first thing I would suggest is that you read my booklet. And once you read my booklet, start practicing in that way. That's how you can. Um, overcome the fact that meditation is impermanent because you learn to let go and not concern yourself about the fact that it changes you'll be less moved, less shaken by the vicissitudes of experience I understand that it is wholesome to help people but what about people that seem to want to abuse our goodwill should we help them or not yes, yes I think we should um I mean, as with everything in Buddhism, it's up to you how far you want to take things. But in the end, you know, the, the, the idea is to not be so concerned, not be concerned about uh, pain, sickness, and even death. So if, if you're still worried about helping someone because it might backfire on you, as the person might not appreciate it or because they might take advantage of you because of the unpleasant consequences of being a good person and that's you know that's an attachment and it's that worry is a cause for suffering and and the reaction and the upset of being taken advantage of is so is due to attachment the enlightened being isn't concerned about that they help someone and if the person doesn't appreciate it, it's not really their concern. I don't think it. I don't think it. It influences their desire to help because they have a pure mind. And moreover, if you're not enlightened, you're trying to have a, to cultivate a pure mind. If you look at some of the jatakas, there was this. Um, I mean, believe in, believe these jatakas or not, some of them are pretty far out in terms of believing them, but in terms of the moral, like they're, they're, no matter what, they're quite profound, whether you believe them to be true or not. The bodhisattva was a, a monkey, and He, um, he, this this man fell into a pit in the forest. I remember, I think the story is even longer than this. But anyway, the man fell in a pit, and this monkey came along and uh, pulled him out of the pit. When the man got out of the pit, he bashed. He picked up a rock and bashed the monkey over the head, thinking he was he would eat the monkey. He would take the monkey for food. And so he picks up the monkey, he throws the monkey over his shoulder. It's after the monkey had saved his life, saved him from this deep 
pit from a hunter's pit or whatever and then to top it off the, the man's walking around in the forest and realizes he's lost and the story goes that the monkey tells him the monkey is still alive but but bleeding out of his head and dying and uh, the monkey shows him the way to go the way to get out of the forest i mean the whole point of the story and it's quite a beautiful story how uh, selfless and unconcerned the monkey is with his own well-being and even with the goodness of this person. He's, he's only concerned solely with his own, his own behavior and his own goodness, his own good deeds to help someone. There's stories like that. It's not the only one. So I think generally the, the consensus, I don't think I'm alone in thinking that you don't worry so much about the goodness or even the appreciation of other people for our good deeds. We do good deeds because they're good. It, it kind of goes against a sort of a superficial understanding of karma that you do good deeds because they give you a good result, and so you're always focused on the result. In fact, that's not really how karma works. Karma is not being focused on the result per se, except in terms of how the, the results except in terms of the result that they have for your own mind. You do good deeds because of the effect that they have on your mind. You don't worry about whether it makes you rich or powerful or even even brings you pleasurable experiences. If our nat natural if our natural if our nature is to break away from samsara. How did we end up so attached to it? It's not our nature to break away from samsara. It's our nature to cling, for the most part. I mean, it, it, some people do let go, but it's quite rare. It happens. It happens even without a Buddha. There are people who become enlightened on their own, but very, very rare. There's just so much in the universe, so much to cling to, that not clinging is a very rare thing. Is ambition bad? Generally, yes. I mean, you have to understand that bad in Buddhism, in Buddhism a lot of things are bad. You know, most things. Unfortunately, in the end, many, many things become unwholesome. But all that means is that they're conducive to rebirth. If you consider something evil because it means you're going to be born again, if so, then it's evil. Ambition is evil because it's likely to make you be born again, which doesn't sound bad to most people, but unfortunately uh, it's a cause for more suffering. And so eventually one who becomes enlightened gives up any desire to be born again. And as a result, they don't have ambition per se because... Uh, because Well, because they've seen there's nothing worth having ambition for, and that ambition is based on delusion. It's based on the idea that there's some benefit from it, obtaining things that are in the end not worth obtaining. So it's based on delusion. But, you know, these are such um, subtle, such refined things that uh, you, you'd probably want to be able, you'd probably want to distinguish, like, the ambition to kill people. That's a very bad ambition. The ambition to meditate, well, it's a fairly benign ambition. And in fact, in a worldly sense, it's beneficial because it means you're going to meditate. 
is cultivating flexibility for half or full lotus position, a right application of effort, or just a material pursuit. Well, there's different kinds of meditation out there. So, in our meditation practice, no, it's not of any, it's not nothing to do with effort. Um, cultivating flexibility in general isn't. Uh, see, it's artificial. You're you're forcing your body into a stretched state. I mean, I can do the full lotus, but I've never really stretched for it, not to any appreciable degree. And that sort of come as a result of meditation, I would say. I mean, through meditating, the body relaxes. And you can sit full lotus. But you know, it's, it's not. The Buddha said, be mindful in any position you're in. It's not. The position isn't special. It's special for certain types of meditation that involve power, you know, involve mental uh, power, like a lot of tranquility meditation. If you want to gain magical powers, you need a very strong state. Not for not to become enlightened. It's a different kind of strength. It's the strength of wisdom, which comes from being objective, not being partial to one state or another. So not concerned about such things. When I'm meditating, my attention shifts from my stomach to other objects. Should I note every time it shifts, or should I forget about it and stick with the stomach? The stomach's not special in any way. The stomach is an example. And it's an easy, obvious object that's always there. I mean, a lot of people obsess about and fixate on the, the idea that this technique is all about the stomach. It's not. The stomach is just a really good base object. Everything else is equally valid as an object. Every other experience you have. So absolutely, you should focus on whatever it is. Try to come back to the stomach for, this, for the sole reason that uh, you don't want to be jumping from one object to another and, and eventually fall into this sort of seeking out the next object. Come back so that you can be sure that you're not seeking out uh, things to note. You're letting them happen of their own accord. It keeps you grounded. The, the stomach will keep you grounded, so it's good to come back. A question regarding the sixth precepts. What would your suggestion be for upholding the sixth precept with an unsociable sleep pattern? So you sleep at 3 to 4 a.m. after the broadcast and wake up in the late morning. I simply push forward the time from noon to 4 p.m. As I'm still only eating what I need, two meals, I work at home and not eating again until the next day. Sure, I mean, these are concepts, they're conventions you want to cultivate you, you know I think the orthodox uh, like probably my teacher would say well you're not keeping the sixth precept just because it's traditional I mean you don't want to you don't want to mess with um, conventions because if you start messing with them then anything goes right so technically no you're not keeping the sixth precept so but what I would suggest is you Create a new precept. You can say you're keeping your eight precepts. Being being clear that you're not actually keeping the sixth precept. And being clear that your precepts are not real precepts. You're not trying to replace the Buddhist teaching or create your new set. But um, you're keeping your own practice in line with the Buddhist teaching. So it's it's an uh, individual practice on your part but you're keeping it because it's very much in line with the sixth precept. It's not the sixth precept, and you shouldn't pretend that it is. 
but uh, but that's only you know it's such a technicality and it's just so that you can be faithful and, and out of reverence and and appreciation for the buddha you consider the precepts like a, a, a statue a buddha statue so you worship the precepts you you venerate and you respect them as a result we don't want to mess with them even though it's inconvenient it's not possible for us to keep the sixth precept well and keep another precept instead that's a practice that's similar to the sixth precept absolutely it's fine i mean you understand the intent and you're it's just as good. Just you know, psychologically as well, it's nice to be um, to to respect you know, respect the Buddha and his, his teachings to the extent that we don't break the rules, even when it seems silly that we're keeping them. It's not it's not the best practice to keep them, but we still respect them. And as a result, we you don't say, "Well, I'm keeping it. I'm just keeping it different." You'd say. No, I'm not keeping the sixth precept, but I'm keeping something similar to it, out of veneration for it. What do you think about Ramdas teachings? I don't think about Ramdas teachings. Sorry, I don't even know anything about Ramdas teachings. Is the best way to go about bringing the two true Dhamma into focus within the group as a visitor rather than a teacher who claims Theravada yet has no affiliation with the actual Sangha and teaches misguided and inaccurate versions of meditation? Well, don't be too quick to assume that someone teaches misguided meditation just because they don't teach practice the same way as you do. There are many different kinds of interpretation. I mean, if you don't agree with someone's way of practicing, then don't don't go to their group. It's the best reason. Better than fighting with them or arguing with them. Start your own group that that, that um, is in your mind not misguided. I have a book called the Dhammapada. Is this the same as Dharma? I mean, the Dhammapada is um, a group of verses. Uh, taught by the Buddha and their stories accompanying the verses that talk about why the verse was spoken, the context. Um, and there are many versions of it and translations into English, but it's originally in the Pali. Dhammapada is a Pali word. Um, and it, it's the Dharma of the Buddha. But Dharma is a Sanskrit word. Dhamma is Pali. Pali is the language close to what the Buddha taught. I mean, as far as we know, uh, he didn't speak Sanskrit. Sanskrit was an, an artificial sort of uh, formalized version of the language that was being spoken. So Dharma is more technically correct than Dhamma. Dhamma is a, a corruption of the word Dharma, but it's what people spoke. You know, like shepherd. The word shepherd comes from sheepherd or sheep herder, one who herds sheep. But we changed it to shepherd, that kind of thing.
Oh, 52 viewers. Hello, everyone. It's nice to see people tuning in. Tomorrow, I think it's a bit ambiguous now because internet's not coming to the new place until Thursday. And we have we have internet here until then. We have this place until August. I could but the, the problem is Wednesday is the day I have to move in. Wednesday is the beginning of the rains. So Wednesday I will be at the new place. Which means Wednesday I'm pretty sure we won't have broadcast. Tomorrow we might have broadcast. Tomorrow I can come back here to do broadcast. But we have a new meditator at the at the new center. I haven't even met him because I'm here at the old place. But tomorrow I have to go meet him and give him his first well, I have our first meeting with him anyway, in the next exercise. I have to think about that. Tomorrow night we may not have may not have um, broadcast. Wednesday we probably won't. And Thursday we most likely will again. Uh, I was planning on re recruiting from the group. Recruiting? What are you, starting an army or a cult? Oh, you're starting your own group. Well, the, I mean, I wouldn't really start in, I don't know. Probably the best thing you can do is do a meditation course first to settle yourself in the practice. Finish a meditation course in whatever tradition, in our tradition, and then uh, and become a leader in that regard. But, um, you know, if it's still doesn't you can still start a course start a group it's just um, not likely to be as effective if you don't have your own intensive meditation background if you're unable to come and do a course then sure start start a group just meditate together there are ways to advertise like there's this meetup.com I think is a good one lots of different ways you can advertise. I wouldn't go like poaching other people's meditators. I don't know how, how kosher that is. What's the difference between formal meditation and just sitting down doing nothing in particular, just being mindful? What's the difference? Well, I mean, <laughs> when you sit down and be mindful, you're meditating. I mean, we have a formal meditation technique, and we it gets quite, quite involved actually throughout the course. So, mm. when you're doing formal meditation, it's a little more psychologically involved because you're 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 intent upon it. You're not doing anything else. If you just sit down and be a little bit mindful, well, the mind is still free to uh, get lost in other things. There's not as much of a, a psychological um, focus or say, attachment to the practice. And so the mind is free to flit and free to decide, yeah, you know, I'll do something else. It's the determination. Like when you set your alarm for 30 minutes, that's kind of making an aditana. I'm going to sit for 30 day, 30 minutes and 
it, that that does something to your mind. So there is a difference. That's the difference. It's the intention. You have the preliminary intention to do something, and that gives you a power, strength. Can give you strength. more questions all right I think we'll uh, tomorrow so maybe not here tomorrow maybe the next time if you've got questions you better ask them because probably won't have another chance before Thursday maybe tomorrow maybe not probably not if I'm gonna move tomorrow Probably be it. Tomorrow is the um, tomorrow is the Salha Puja, which is the full moon of the Salha, which is when the Buddha taught the uh, Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta. Very important discourse. Maybe I'll try to do a broadcast, a special broadcast. During walking meditation, I notice sometimes I have double correctness. For example, turning, turning, thinking, thinking. I don't understand. Familiar with the Dhammakaya movement in Thailand? Oh yes, as familiar as I want to be. They have some very, very strange views. Anyone um, who's wondering about the Dhammakaya movement should really read this essay by this former monk, a uh, former Dhammakaya inner circle monk. I think he's not a monk even anymore, but man, he's got some interesting things to say about Dhammakaya. I've, I spent five hours listening to, we had a private interview with the vice head of Dhammakaya, the number two guy. The number one guy doesn't give that kind of thing, but the number two guy because was involved, I was involved with the project to um, a project to do a documentary on meditation, and we wanted to do something broad about meditation in general all over the world. And the Dhammakaya guys were having nothing, nothing to do with it. They wanted it to just be about them, their meditation. So he spent five hours explaining to us the Dhammakaya practice, and it was strange to say the least i mean some of it wasn't bad but they have this idea that the mind is this big and it, it exists here in your center of gravity and do some crazy things two things happening at once when i'm turning my feet and body thoughts invade well there you go you see that the mind is not under your control it's impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. It's so good because it helps you to let go. It's frustrating in the beginning. 
And that's good because it challenges you to let go so that you stop being frustrated about it. It's a difficult situation. Difficult situations are good for showing you your potential reactions to difficulty, to unpleasantness. What are the main differences between Taoism and Buddhism? I mean, they're both so complex. You know, what do you mean? Which Buddhism, which Taoism? Do you mean the Tao Te Ching and the Tipitaka? The Tao Te Ching is a pretty awesome book, I think, and it's very, it's it's much in line with Buddhism. There are some strange oddities in it, like talking about heaven and the masculine and the feminine, if that's how you translate it. And it's not entirely Buddhist um, necessarily, but it's a good book. But Taoism, Taoism got kind of weird. I mean, there's a lot of alchemy and that kind of thing. Not, I mean, I'm not really interested in answering that question. Not, not on this forum. Okay, I'm going to stop it there. We'll see. Maybe we'll have a special broadcast. Oh, there's a new question. All right, one more. This is it. How do I cultivate empathy? Just being able to understand others' feelings, especially negative ones. For example, someone else is being bullied. I know I should try to walk in their shoes instead of feeling contempt. Are there ways to go about this? Yeah, kind of we've answered this. I've answered this before like yesterday i think but um you don't have to worry so much about empathy concern yourself with letting go letting go of the anger letting go of the aversion towards the person because when you do that and, and when you're in general mindful you'll be much more in tune with people's emotions and their their defilements you know you'll be able to see people's problems be much better able to handle them and, and, and understand them because you'll be present. You really will be alert and attentive to other people. And, and being free from your reactions, you'll be able to react appropriately. If someone wants something from you, you'll be much more inclined to just give it to them, to help them. It's just the easy way. I mean, it's, it's just natural. Why wouldn't you? Why, why fight? Why, why avoid the situation? So empathy is the kind of thing that comes from being enlightened, comes from mindfulness, comes from being, being pure of mind. So worry much more about your own mental purity and things like empathy, compassion, and so on will come from it. Does it make sense to do walking meditation whilst commuting? Like on the bus? Commuting. I don't know how that could be possible on the train, maybe. Sure, I mean, don't worry too much about it. Walking meditation is good when you're doing a full day of meditation. Uh, that's really what it's best for because um, 
because you don't want to be sitting around all day. But if you're walking around all day anyway, just sitting meditation is enough. On the other hand, walking meditation has its own benefits and it's not to be discarded. So it is good to do it. But if you're commuting, I certainly wouldn't be too concerned about walking meditation. Now, when you're walking to work, yeah, when you're walking to work, do a sort of a simple walking, like walking, walking, or right, left. I mean, that's the sort of natural thing you should do anyway. I didn't realize commuting meant walking. Walking could mean commuting. Not really sure what that word originally meant, but in my mind, commuting means being on a vehicle. That's what it's always meant. Hard to maybe you're British. Are you British? British way of talking. Okay, enough. Thank you. Have a good night. See you all again soon.